Lord, we think about the truth that we just sang, and that you are forever ours, and we are forever yours, and someday you will call us home, and it will be a good day, a glorious day, a day of joy and unbounding life, the kind of life that death cannot touch. Mm. We long for that, Lord, and we, uh, we struggle when those you call to yourself uh, have to go. But uh, we rejoice, Lord, when you show grace and mercy and lavish your love and the gift of the gospel on uh, your, your people. And uh, we're grateful for that. We pray now as we enter into this time that you would meet us and show us your glory, that, that we, like Moses, would have uh, an experience this morning of your greatness and your glory, of, to, to know your way, Lord, and to, to catch a glimpse of you through hearing who you are. We thank you for Exodus chapter 34, and we pray now that you would go with us in this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Exodus chapter 34 this morning. These verses provide for us a tremendous gift. Uh, what, a, what a view of the Lord. So I titled the sermon, The Lord, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord. And we're just going to begin in verse 1 and kind of move through these things. You can see on your sermon notes, there's three different breakouts to this message. I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning in the second. And so we're going to go through all of it and then come back to the second section. Let me begin by reading uh, the first three verses, preparing for God's presence. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. And so you have this invitation once again for Moses to make the climb. Now, you've got to remember, uh, Moses is, is not a young man at this point. This is no small just assumption. Every time he climbs up this mountain, it is work, and he, it's a climb. This time he's preparing to climb uh, with two tablets like the first, and he's to cut these out of the stone and then bring them up. It's the second set of tablets. You remember that on the first set of tablets, God said he wrote with the very finger of God on those tablets. Two tablets because there's two parties in this covenant. The tablets would contain all of the Ten Commandments that the Lord spoke to all of Israel in their hearing. And then they were so afraid, they said, Moses, you go and, you know, talk on our behalf to the Lord. If, if he continues to do this, we're going to die. We can't handle this. And so the second tablet would have had also the Ten Commandments, one representing the Lord and his part of the commitment and the people and their commitment. An amazing thing to see. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about whether the Lord actually wrote the second set of tablets and I believe he did. Uh, he says here that he would, and then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 4, Moses reflects back and says again that the Lord, in fact, wrote on the second set of tablets. So you have Moses writing a lot of the case law 
but the Lord himself writing the Ten Commandments in his very finger. Imagine how precious it would be to see the, the writing of God. And these tablets were then to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant and carried with them wherever they went. Now remember that Moses broke the first set of, of, the, of the commandments. The tablets were, were shattered. And growing up, I always thought this was another example of Moses kind of flying off the handle. You know, he did have an anger problem. But I don't believe that that was happening here. This was a ceremonial visual of what the people had done. Just imagine, before he even made it down with the sealed covenant and the visible reminder of this agreement, this covenant, they had shattered it by making an idol and then bowing down to it, the golden calf. And so Moses took in a very visible and public way, ceremonially shattering the first set, which you broke. You there would be all of Israel broke the covenant. Who did not break the covenant? God did not. God did not break His word. He is faithful to His word. He keeps His promises. And so you have this then reminder again. Remember the first time? Don't have anyone even set foot on the mountain. You better go down. The people are about to come up. You put a fence up. Do something. If they do that, they'll die. Only Moses is given this opportunity. Only Moses is to see the glory of God in this way. Across the valley, if there was a, a shepherd with his flocks on the mountain over there and then trying to peer over and see what he could see, no, that doesn't count either. Uh, this is the region where this would have taken place. So you can see if, if say, the, the meeting happened here, if I'm maybe over on this mountain, I can see a cross. Nope, that doesn't, get, that doesn't work. In fact, I think the warning here is if you try that, you're going to die. And so in God's grace, he gives this warning. Keep people down on the valley floor and off of this mountain. The holiness of God is such that if, if you don't have permission to take it in, it will consume you. You will be consumed by his holiness. And so what an invitation it is. Now remember verse, uh, chapter 33, uh, the requests of Moses. I want to know your ways, Lord. Teach me your ways. And go with us. And then his final request was, show me your glory. What we're about to see happen here is God's gracious answer to those requests. I want to see you. I want to know your ways. I want to see your glory. So let's read how the Lord does this. Verse 4. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai. As the Lord had commanded him, he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Here it is. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head and worshipped. You notice here, he's not 
clamoring for more. This is, this is more than enough. In fact, he bows his head to the ground and worships. The right response. This is the response that you see consistent in the Scriptures when people are given a glimpse of God's glory. Face down to the earth in awe and worship. Now, we're going to come back to this, and so let's move on and see the rest of these verses first. Renewing God's covenant. Verse 9. Renewing God's covenant. Moses said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been seen, uh, have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And the people among you whom, uh, whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Now, here we get into some of these expressions of the Ten Commandments that he's going to be writing in uh, in, in the, on the stone tablets and the expressions or the case law is kind of how you apply these Ten Commandments then. And he's going to reiterate a few of these. Now as we read these, I want you to remember the, the context. What has just taken place? A shattering of the covenant. A lack of faith. A complete rejection of God's commandments. So many broken uh, parts to this equation. So many sins committed. And so he's going to reiterate some of these things, and I think this would have landed very uh, specifically on people who had done uh, the very opposite of these commands. Verse 11, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go lest it become to you a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For, if you, shall, uh, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. That's an echo of the Ten Commandments. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited and you eat his sacrifice and take uh, of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. It's a warning. You shall serve the Lord alone. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. A lot of people at this point would be cringing, right? You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. Uh, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you shall not, uh, will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And then he adds this detail here. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. Is that easy to do? I mean, in agricultural society, 
depending upon the timing of the rain and the planting of the crops and all of these things. This is more important. If you fail to honor me there, you sin. Amazing. Verse 22, you shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingathering at year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. What a promise that is. Incredible promise of protection from surrounding nations. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with any leaven uh, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Uh, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Remember we covered that? The, that kind of, uh, we're going to put a potion on the land to make it fertile. And so you do this. This was a, kind of a Canaanite, Egyptian, uh, pagan practice. Have nothing to do with that. The Lord said, to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So think about verse 28 then. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. Moses neither ate bread or drank water. What does that mean? Supernatural sustaining by God. His focus was completely on the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. God provided all that he needed. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the he being God himself. We'll save the rest of this chapter for uh, the following week. But just a few things to point out here. You have, once again, echoed some of the things we've already covered, but this is a covenant relationship. God takes very serious, similar to like a wedding when two parties come together and agree, this is the nature of our relationship. You have spoken in that then vows, right? These are vows. It seems extremely fitting that the Lord say, I am to be your spouse alone. There should be no other worship of anybody else. Don't bow before or whore after any other gods. Worship me alone, God says. That's the expectation. It's not out, out of bounds, unrealistic, but you've got to remember the context that this happens in. They already have broken this. Amazing. So the vows are made. God makes vows. He makes promises. Great, precious promises of how He would provide and protect and bring them into the land and protect them once they were in the land. I will, you shall. I will, you shall. Amazing. Some people look at the Old Testament, they read through the book of Exodus, and all they see is law. They see this, right? I will do this, you do that. This is our agreement. But I want this morning for us to see law, yes, and grace. And grace. Because... We're in Exodus 34. You remember what the, what's already happened? They've already broken this. We're back here again. 
If it was only law, these people would be dead. They would have been consumed. God brings his law, yes, his commandments, yes. And then he brings his grace and he lavishes mercy and forgiveness on people who deserve the opposite. So I want to go now back to this middle section and consider this up close. Verses 4 to 8, proclaiming God's glory. Remember how the Lord was going to come and and show this glimpse of glory to Moses. He said, listen, I, I have to hide you in a rock. There's a rock that's got a split in it. And I believe that's an anticipation of Christ where we believers are hidden in the one who was split for us. We are hidden in Christ from the all-consuming holiness and glory of God, which apart from that, we would be consumed. Moses is a sinner. He doesn't have any right on his own to stand before this. And so God uh, lovingly and graciously hides him in the cleft of the rock to protect him from harm when he glimpses this glory as God comes by. And look again how this happens. He, the Lord passed before him, but how? How did he pass before him? Audibly. God brought his presence and passed before him in such a way that Moses heard glory, the glory of God. So amazing is God's revelation so often. In fact, the the word Jesus is referred to as the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He hears words and he sees glory. Christian, do you, when you read your Bible, do you see with your ears? Does that happen for you? When you hear the Word of God and, and you hear it read and you hear it bouncing into your soul, are you seeing Him? Glimpsing his glory, it is so similar for us. God doesn't have a body. He is spirit. And so he comes and proclaims his presence. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving Don't miss this. Old Testament here. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So let's look up close at this. This is what might be my favorite section of Scripture in all of the Bible. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament the echo of this shows up again and again and again. Look, look at this. Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 5 and 15, Psalm 103, 8, Psalm 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, and Nahum 1, 3. This is God's glory echoing through the generations. In fact, what's so fascinating about the book of Jonah Uh, about the worst example of a prophet you can find in the Bible, is that when Jonah just does not want to go to Nineveh, he runs the other way. Why? Because he doesn't want God to save those Ninevites. He wants them to be judged. Listen to what he says. It displeased Jonah greatly because God showed mercy 
upon these people who, by the way, repented when he preached his seven-word sermon. If you ever question the sovereign hand of God to bring salvation, read the book of Jonah. He can save an entire city all at once from a seven-word sermon. Some of you are like, seven-word sermon? That's awesome. Let's do that. Look at what Jonah says. Oh, what a terrible heart. Don't have this heart. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarsus. For I knew, I knew that you, you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love relenting from disaster. This is Old Testament, friends. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. He's the same God. We read through the Old Testament and we are just riddled with displays of grace and mercy all over the place. One of the goals that I have for us as a, as a congregation as we move through Old Testament books is that we dispel with this God of the Old Testament who just dispenses lightning and hellfire down on people and, and just pounds them into the dust. And then this God of the New Testament that's just gentle and nice and, and forgiving. That's not, that's, that's not the picture of Scripture that we see. He is all of these things. Yahweh, Yahweh. What does that call to mind? Exodus 3. You remember this? I am, I am, the Lord says. That's my name. I exist. That's all that needs to be said. Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord. Now, what's difficult when you read Anytime you read, any, any, even a letter or an email, is you don't know the tone. Was this loud and thunderous, earth-shaking, smoke-inducing, just fire? Or was it quiet and intimate? He's in the rock. He's, he's, he's hiding in the rock. The Lord has him covered, and he proclaims this. The Lord, the Lord. It's possible that it's maybe more like the second. We've seen the earth shake. We've seen the smoke and the fire. But this is close. This is, this is just Moses hearing God's revelation of himself. There are eight times in the Bible where names are repeated. Abraham. Abraham. Remember that? Don't kill Isaac. He stops his hand. And then Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Exodus 3, Samuel, Samuel. Any of these stories kind of ring out? Martha, Martha. You, you hear that? It's Jesus, it's Martha. Probably not Martha, you know. It, it was probably closer. Simeon, Peter, Peter. Or Jesus from the cross. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We don't know what the 
the tone or the, the feel of these words are, but it's, it's suffice to say that this is a special moment where God proclaims his name, not just with the title, but with all this detail. I want to know your way. I want to see your glory. He says, I am a God who is merciful or filled with mercy. Another way to see this word is compassionate. I am a compassionate God. I have a heart. Not just a law book. I have a heart. I show mercy. What is mercy, friends? Mercy is when God withholds due punishment. Who deserves to die? All the people who have rebelled against Him. Who is not going to die because God is a God of mercy? Those people who rebelled against Him. I am a God of mercy a God of compassion. And then he goes on, I am a God who is gracious. I am full of grace, kind. I bestow my favor on those who don't deserve it. Right? This is the opposite of, of mercy, the withholding of punishment that's due. This is when God shows a, a kindness or a grace to people who don't deserve it. Hmm. God of mercy, God of grace. He says, I am slow to anger. The, the phrase here is, is fascinating in the original language. It means long of nose. I just learned this this past week. It's to be long of nose. What does that mean? Commentators kind of aren't 100% sure that, that this is just right, but they, they think this is accurate, kind of slow to anger, in that you would do this. Let's have a collective deep breath. Okay, so in through your nose deep and then out through your mouth slow. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, how often it's good to do that. To be long of nose. Not flying off the handle. Not just letting it rip. Lightning bolt. Kill them all. But slow to anger. Some suggest that animals who have short noses snort more. You know, I'm not going to try to snort. It might not work well. Our dog snorts a lot. He's got a tiny little nose, short nose. But be a long nose. Not snorting, but patient. Slow. This is God. It's who he is. Such a good reminder for us. So we, we, need to, we need to take his word for who he is. His glory. He calls this his glory. He is abounding in steadfast love. Abounding. Think fountain. Think infinite. Think unending steadfast love. It's hesed love. Loyal. Long-lasting. It will not fade. It does not run out. It is abounding in God who he is he's also abounding in truthfulness or faithfulness that is he is true and true to his word he never lies he cannot lie he is a faithful god faithful and then he says this keeping 
love or keeping steadfast love for thousands. And I think the emphasis here is on keeping or maintaining or not running out, but holding, keeping, faithfully holding steadfast love for thousands. And then you look at it and you're like, thousands? Well, that's, I mean, that's not that many people. Thousands, there's more than that in Bellingham. But it's not individuals only that are in view here. The context points thousands to generations. It's keeping, holding, maintaining hesed love for thousands of generations. That's awesome. That's a God who says that with everything he has in view, including eternity. Thousands of generations blessed by this faithful, loyal, unending, abounding love of God. And then this might be the most incredible thing in all of this, that he would say this, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. How? How how can he do that and still be God? Forgiving iniquity, that's wickedness. Forgiving wickedness. Transgression, another word for that would be rebellion. This is willful disobedience against revelation, commandments. And sin, this is the all-encompassing word. Just in case we were concerned that we might out-sin his forgiveness, he gives us all three words all together to just say, snowball it all up. I can forgive that. I can forgive that. It's who I am. It's Yahweh. Yahweh. It's amazing. God is not a reluctant forgiver. Some of you need to know this. need to preach this to your heart. He's not a reluctant forgiver. He loves to forgive. He delights to forgive. It's part of his glory. Oh, I've been there before. Lord, here I come again. I failed. I sinned. Rebelled against you. I chose my own way. I gave way to pride. I made me the epicenter. I'm sorry. In the back of my mind, do I have a Father in heaven who is like, oh, I'm so sick of this. You again? Come on, man. Figure it out. Fine. I'll keep my promise. It's not him. That's not, that's not the God of the Bible. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not reluctantly, but, but overflowingly so, delighting to forgive. Now, shall we sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, may it never be. That's not what we're talking about. God loves to forgive when we come and confess. One of the most significant things that struck me about our journey through uh, the Whole in Our Holiness book by Kevin DeYoung was the fact that sanctification includes repentance. It's a way of life. That, that 
God sees our holiness as including repentance. The path of righteous living is the path of repentance. You see, they're not separate. So when I sin, I call it what it is, and I take it before his throne, and I confess it, and I lay it down at his feet, and I find mercy, and I am forgiven. And, and he does so joyfully, willingly. It is his glory. But there's more, right? There's more. That's not all it says. And here's the problem what we have is we live in a day that would prefer to just put the period of the sentence there. Let's just stop there and it's all perfect, right? Hmm. The Lord, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Whoa. So he's not a God who just says, Oh, you guys, you know, I know you're doing your best. Just lots of flaws, lots of mistakes. No biggie. Okay? Just, just you know, you'll work it out. Just, I'll just kind of just look the other way. You kind of sin your way through it, and it'll be fine. That's the God of mainstream Christendom right now. That, that's the God who, in a lot of people's mind, who come to church... In churches today, they see that God. They assume His forgiveness and grace. It's just like, well, yeah, that's automatic. I mean, sin's not that big a deal, is it? He's a loving God. He understands. Hmm. He will by no means clear the guilty. We live in an either-or day, but the Bible teaches a both-and. We, we've got to have this clear in our minds. And it's not just both and like, okay, we've got to accommodate that. We'll have a spot for that kind of over here, but we'll focus on this. No, it is both and glory. It's God's glory to, to punish sin, to track it, to note it, and to deal with it justly and righteously. How could he be good if he didn't? Hmm. A lot of times it's just a matter of perspective. If it's me, the perpetrator, then I want mercy and grace. But if I'm being sinned against, then maybe I want something else from God. Right? Maybe I want justice or even wrath. Leave room. Don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath. You see? He cannot be good and fail to be just. Or to punish the guilty. God is merciful and forgiving. We see this in His glory revealed. And we see this as well. God is just and wrathful. Now let's look at this because we've been here before at this, this very scary thought of that, that somehow maybe my great-grandchildren would be punished for my sin. Or that maybe I am actively being punished by God for sins that my great-grandfather committed. Is that possible? I mean, is that what's being said here? And how is that just? It's not what's being said here. In Ezekiel chapter 18, you see this, verse 20. God says himself, the soul, the person, the soul who sins shall die. 
the son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So what he's saying here is, let's be clear, I make choices that carry real consequences, and the consequences of those choices are upon my head. Punishment for my sin is mine. Rightly, justly from God. So then what do we make of this? What seems to be a, a, a conflict in Scripture. We go back to when we first saw it. In the revelation of the Ten Commandments, in the second co- commandment, we have this. Uh, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. We saw that echoed in our chapter here. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on on the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, note this, of those who hate me. That's an ongoing thing. Uh, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So what we see here is that there is a sin that I can commit in my life when I choose to be comfortable with sin and to live in sin. and, and, And I do that with a display for the children and the generations that look to me. I put them in the atmosphere of such sin so that it makes them prone to commit the same. We talk about this regularly, the generational sin. It's it's not that I can sit in a psychiatrist's office and just blame everybody else for my problems. I chose my sin. I'm responsible. However, I can be disposed or thinking wrongly because of the environment that I grew up in. If I raise my children and I'm robbing banks every weekend and they're driving the getaway car, it's probably going to affect the way they think about banks and money. So to say it this way, we are to be asking this. The, The people of Israel are to be asking this. What kind of example will we leave the generations who look to us? Will I be a blessing for those generations or will I be a curse? Will I be an example that calls them to the the righteousness of God, to walk with Him humbly and, and follow His ways or will I do just the opposite and make it all the more easy for them to rebel against the Lord following my footsteps? I'll just say this though. Even in my own generations, that, that my family heritage, that I am so uniquely blessed by a godly home, it was not always like that. To be clear, uh, there's some pretty rough stuff in my family story. Not that far from me. So the power of the gospel reaches in and meets each person with tremendous freedom. And what What I've watched happen, even in some of your lives, is that just because you had a home that was like this, or even a non-existent home, or or your parents were sinners unequaled, that doesn't mean there's no hope. It just means that the gospel can shine even brighter. And there can be a new home established, and a new way that would bless generations to come. Look at how Moses responds. He quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's a good response for the generations to see. 
to bow before the Lord, to, to, to see Him in this way, and then to say, glory, glory. A God who is forgiving, compassionate, a God of grace and mercy, and a God who shows justice, brings consequence for sin. He doesn't just turn the other way. Response this morning, I was kind of thinking about this because uh, this is the problem that we face. Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's really the question that we have when we confront this incredible passage. What are we going to experience from God? The first part or the second? How do we know that God will say to us, you are forgiven, instead of, I will visit my wrath upon you? What's the difference? I say it this way, there are two groups of sinners. We're all sinners. But there are two groups of sinners in the world. Two groups. The first group of sinners is filled with those who see their sin as serious. It's a big deal. And they repent of their sins. And they they look to Jesus to find mercy, forgiveness, and eternal life. That's the group that I want to be in. There's another group of sinners in this world today. And that is filled with those who refuse to repent. They harden their hearts. Maybe the definition here would be stiff-necked. No, I'm not going to do it. I want my will. I want my way. And I want it now. And I won't repent of my sin. And that group will meet God's just and eternal wrath. There's a lot of questions about what is the unforgivable sin in the Bible. I'll tell you, it's, it's that right there. A lack of repentance. If you do not repent, you will not be forgiven. You, just be clear here. If you do not repent of your sins, you face God's wrath. Two groups of sinners. So the question then begs as we respond to this glorious passage today what group are you in i mean really when you lay down at night and all the day is done and you just take inventory where do i really stand with the lord where am i on solid ground or do i feel like my soul is on shifting sands i want to close with a call from one of the echoes of this passage in the Old Testament, it comes from Joel chapter 2. And I want this call to be to all of us, for those who would say, yes, I am in the group that has said, I repent of my sins. I know how serious this offense is. I turn to Jesus and I trust Him to forgive me. If you're in that group today, then I would say, rejoice in this. That's what you believe. It's not just a one-time event. It's today. And keep repenting. Keep walking in the light. If you're here today and you have not yet turned from your sin, and the Lord is not on the throne of your heart, and you feel on the shifting sands, listen to these words. 
the Lord says in the book of Joel, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. What's he saying? Well, the practice in the day was to have this mourning practice where they would put ashes on their head and they would rip their garments and it was supposed to be kind of a display of how serious they were taking their sins. And the Lord said, listen, Anybody can do that, but if it's not inside happening in your heart, it means nothing. Rend your hearts. Return to the Lord, Joel says. For He, listen, He is a gracious and merciful God. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let me just give you this promise today. If today you repent of your sins and you look to Jesus, the one who took upon himself all of our sin. And he, he, he paid for it in full. If you look to Jesus, repenting of your sin and trusting in him to be Savior, you will be forgiven by this gracious and compassionate God. You will experience life and joy. And you will join with the saints who sing forever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. Let's pray. Father, You are, You are all of these things. We give You praise. I thank You that You don't treat us according to what we deserve, which is instant death for our sins and offenses against You. But You show mercy and grace and compassion you forgive us you're slow to anger you're you're not a reluctant forgiver you're a a a delighting forgiver one who loves to forgive we thank you for that we don't deserve this forgiveness we we have not earned it jesus worked all the work for us we simply trust we simply obey in faith just like the people of the Old Testament did. We look to You. We rend our hearts of our sin. We, we turn from those offenses and we want to please You. We want to obey You. We want to look to You and walk with You. We want You to be with us. To go with us. We thank You for Your incredible promises both to Your people here and throughout the Scriptures. And we worship You, a God of mercy and grace, a God of justice and wrath. In Jesus' name, Amen.